Hey, everybody. Welcome to Building Vesser. It's a podcast where we talk about what we're doing to create the world of Vesser, a new intellectual property franchise that's going to be coming to all kinds of forms of media. We've got some games coming up soon. we got a, a show on the way, lots to talk about. And you can help us launch that into the world because if you're listening, you're a big deal. Like you're a VIP. You're behind the scenes. You're making it happen. And, and you can help us a lot by following us on social media. We're up to almost 500 on Instagram, not even 100 on Facebook. So you can help launch a franchise IP for just one Facebook like a month. Please adopt this show. Whatever call to action strums on your heartstrings and gets you to actually pull out your phone and go to at World Investor on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or I think even x.com. Anyway, love your support. Looks good for the people we're trying to make partnerships with. So at World Investor. And I'm Mike McCarg. And I'm Victory Palmasano. And I'm Ann Halk. And we're Wild Stallions. <laughs> Sorry, that's Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bill S. Preston. And I'm Ted Theodore. I'm Bill S. Preston, Esquire. And I'm Ted Theodore Logan. And together we are. What? Have you ne- neither of you have ever seen Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? Yes, I have. It's just been a minute. I, I haven't seen it since I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. But Mike, your <laughs> brain, your capacity for recall is a wild and mysterious thing that no one understands. Be excellent to each other <laughs> and party on, dudes, man. Yeah, really. Just nothing. Okay. But like two people listening right now are like, I get it. Yes, I get it. I think similarly, the last time I watched it, I was in middle school. It was a really old film by then, though. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't that old. I saw it in the theater. It was not in theaters. I saw it. It just wasn't my... Yeah, I was more into like 16 Candles and... That that makes sense. Were you into John Hughes movies? No. Oh, you're asking Anne. I was asking you. I think Anne was... Tiny, if not born yet. <laughs> she was too short to be allowed to watch the movie. <laughs> not to date her. There's, I mean, John Hughes movies are now quite problematic in many ways, but. Jenny loves them, so I've seen them all many times. I like them more now than I did then, but it's just because I associate them like sitting next to Jenny on the couch. So oh, that's sweet. That was the whole goal. Romance. So indeed, mission accomplished, John Hughes. Welcome to Building Vesser. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do some listener questions at the end. Today, we wanted to chat a little bit more about like why it's fun to play TTRPGs, right? You know, I've been working on two things in this phase of I'm on a podcast, but not a professional podcaster. One is just being natural and conversational and not putting on a host persona. And two, like not doing an outrageous amount of prep before we record. And then when I remember what we were talking about, I was like, oh, I know things about this. And so I made an outline old school like I used to do on podcasts all the time. But I don't know how to be (laughs) conversational and have my outline of things I want to talk about. I mean, hey, Mike, do you like TTRPGs? I frigging love TTRPGs. Well, let's talk about it. They are my favorite form of media now. Like It used to be video games were my favorite media as a kid. Then like novels supplanted video games. And then briefly film 
took the pole position on media in my life. And then video games came roaring back. And then TTRPGs have been there for several years now. I just don't think there is anything like them. And if I have in amount of time to spend, I would rather spend it playing a TTRPG than any other kind of media I could encounter. Do you remember the moment or the season where the light bulb went on and you were like, oh my God, this is going to replace novels and comic books as source material for franchise IP. Do you remember the moment? I don't think there was a specific moment, which is a horrible anticlimactic response to a great question. But I mean, it how did a, the seed of that idea start germinating in your mind where you're like, oh, wait a second? Because usually you're really ahead of trends. Historically, you've been ahead of trends. Yes. So. I played advanced Dungeons and Dragons, AD&D, in high school. Really like more like middle school, like eighth and ninth grade. And I played a Star Wars RPG in like fifth grade. And they're fine, but it's like I couldn't quite get it because it was theater of the mind and I wanted to do things the rules didn't allow and I didn't understand why I couldn't do them. And flash forward to adulthood and recent adulthood and a bunch of listeners of a podcast I used to be on started like an online D&D group and invited me to join. And I was like, I am not cool enough to join an online D&D group because I have this thing where like kind of the nerdier and the more fringe something is the cooler I think it is and the less likely I am to think like I could participate. So I like put off that invitation for a while. And then finally I was like, yeah, I'll try it. I guess sounds cool. And then I went, you know, I had to roll a character and they took me through rolling a character, which was really different. And there was like software D&D Beyond that helped you do this now. And I saw these, there was this race now called Ancestries in D&D language called the Warforged, so they're like not biological life. They're kind of almost like fantasy robots. And if I get a chance to play a robot, I play a robot. So we entered. Uh, I entered this like Zoom call, and everybody started doing voices, like in character. And I was so intimidated. I was like, I can't, I can't do voices. So I had this like incredible sense of imposter syndrome. But everybody was so cool and so chill about it. And I did a not voice voice for my character, which is just my voice with different pacing. And then I had this idea. We were on a ship and my character doesn't have to breathe. And we're trying to figure out what's going on. So I was like, I want to have someone else tie a rope around me and then lower me into the water so I can just like look around and see what's happening. And so they did, and I saw the monster coming up from the deeps. And realizing I was going to get bit, I asked if, since someone was holding the rope, I could kind of rappel up the side of the boat and then run across the side of it and then leap and use my momentum from the rope to wrap around to the other side of the boat, shouting alarm as it happened. And anyway, the DM was like, I like where your head's at. You know, give me a... Acrobatics check, I think it was. And I rolled a natural 20. And everybody cheered. And there was there was this just incredible jubilance. And then when it started, this really tense, fun, exciting monster encounter. And I was like, this is pretty cool. So I got really into it. And then as people played more, because we, we had like a large community. It was like a table of tables. At the time, there was probably 
40 or 50 of us playing in one game at that point. And people started having these moments in character that were really beautiful storytelling. Like people improving, but like they knew their character enough. They knew a moment would happen. So there'd be a, kind of a confession or a self-realization or a, a moment of relationship between two characters. And I was fascinated because I was like, these, like no one's ever going to see this in a theater. This isn't going to be on a shelf. If it happened in a session, five other people will have experienced this moment and no one else. Or if it happened, like someone wrote it out in one of our text roleplay channels, the other people on the server will see this and no one else. And so there's something like beautiful and ephemeral about that in, in the in a world of like mass produced, manufactured, maximum ROI media production. And because a TTRPG is a set of game rules that facilitate play and storytelling, it's more accessible. There's more people telling stories. And it's easier, it is easier to play a session of a TTRPG than to write the shortest short story that ever short storied. And so that energy of being at an improvise, incredible personal story moments is attracting the most, the youngest, the most interesting storytellers in the world. And it reminds me of what we saw happen with science fiction stories, kind of pre and post war and comic books, 40s, 50s and 60s, kind of like when everybody who who like couldn't quite even fit into being a sci-fi novelist because they're too weird in the stories we want to tell. They, they did comic books. And I think that's what's happening now with TTRPGs because you're seeing an explosion of game systems and settings that are really, really compelling. And, and it's, it's more inclusive and representational than any other form of media that I can recall. And since I think if you look at the future, demographically of the United States and of the world, the people making TTRPGs look more like what the average person is going to look like in 20 years than any other form of media. So I think it's kind of just statistically, demographically inevitable. Anyone who can roll a set of dice can tell a story in a TTRPG and tell a really good one because everyone knows how to pretend. You don't know, you don't have to know how to write. You don't have to know how to paint. You don't have to know how to design or, or anything. You just have to know how to pretend. And everybody knew how to pretend when they were a kid. And that's why I think TTRPGs are growing so quickly and why I think they're nowhere near where they will ultimately grow to be in our society. You said everyone knows how to pretend. Or everyone knew how to pretend. Most adults have forgotten. I'm curious to know how that the idea that a lot of adults have forgotten how to pretend why the brain does that, how the brain can get back to being able to pretend. So why don't we pretend well? Yeah. Shame. There's a developmental thing that happens. Playing is cool when you're a toddler and when you're grade school aged, but then something happens and that thing is prepubescence, puberty, and adolescence. And social belonging becomes biologically the primary drive for a person. 
in in that stage of development for for, for an overwhelming majority of people. And then that for for most people that is allying oop to the next phase of social bonding, which is mate selection. Right? It's all the selfish chain trying to do its thing. So when you hit that stage of development. Fitting in is of preeminent importance. And play is actually a really vulnerable thing and produces unique behaviors as opposed to conforming behaviors. Because when you're an adolescent, even if you're a nonconformist, you're conforming to the social standards of other nonconformists. So play becomes not cool. And if you keep playing too long, I can say this from experience, there is a punitive collective social reaction. And your social brain responds to that. And so every time you would go to play after you've had punitive experiences, as a matter of self-protection, your brain walls that off and says no. And before you know it, that shame is so internalized, it is so automatic, you can't begin play behaviors at all. So that's what happens. Then that carries into adulthood. We know psychologically once shame sort of bakes in, it's real hard to crack back out of the psyche. So as adults, we start to engage like, well, we can play sports and that's, you know, there's a set of rules and we're not pretending, but we get to throw the ball. I'm not shaming sports, by the way. Or we play board games because we're still us. We're just rolling dice and ha ha ha. Sorry, you know, I bumped your token back or whatever. You landed on my property and now owe me all these fake paper monopoly dollars. So it's like you're playing, but you're not pretending. And the pretend is what becomes really difficult for adults. And so TTRPGs kind of hijack your brain with rules into pretending a little bit. Like you can't play unless you pretend, unless you what if in your mind. And Victor, you know, what if is the foundation for storytelling. Like you start by asking a what if question to tell a story. And once you are telling a story, I, I say often to some of our like communications clients that story is the most powerful human technology, more than fire, more than the wheel. Like storytelling is it. Because of the way our brains respond to story, research tells us that when you're responding to a story, you literally go into the viewpoint of a protagonist. You are them as far as your brain is concerned. You stop daydreaming. People spend about a third of their waking hours daydreaming unless they're immersed in story, at which point they stop daydreaming. Or, or you could say they're just in a really focused daydreaming, so there's not room for other daydreaming. And then your brain makes everything real that you're experiencing a story. So if you read a story about someone eating a sandwich, the parts of your brain that light up when you actually eat a sandwich light up. It's really, really strange. Or if we've done brain imaging scans, if you have someone look at a square, they now through brain imaging can tell you're looking at a square by scanning your not occipital. Anyway, whatever the, the visual cortex in the back of the brain, it has a name. But now they can also have you like think of a square or read a story about someone seeing a square. And then you get the same thing on the brain scan. I think about this all the time. If someone you love in a fictional story dies, like people cry and grieve like it's a real person because their brain is making it real. And even to the point that like those grief reactions and those compassion reactions change our brain and body and blood chemistry enough that it can actually alter our behavior. So story is like incredibly powerful and incredibly emotive. But what's interesting to me is we're all talking about stories that we're consuming. We're watching a film, we're watching a TV show, we're reading something, whether that's a novel or a comic book. We're reading someone else's story. In a TTRPG, you are the storyteller. Your brain is responding to your own experience of pretend, 
And what is amazing for me, watching this happen over and over and over at tables, is seeing people learn more about themselves through their character. The number of times I've seen someone who is cishet, cisgender, heterosexual, and their character's not. <laughs> and then that begins a process of very necessary exploration for them and life change or, or people understanding their own relationships with other people, their social patterns, their family systems, all these things, your character becomes a safe proxy to understand yourself as you tell a story and for other people to have a distance from your emotional thing. So we're not actually in your life and your issues. Our characters are talking and that distance of separation creates some safety and also helps like a lot of people have social anxiety now, yeah. right? Like, a, like most people have social anxiety now. And the rules and the scaffolding and the characters let us rehearse social interactions in the context of a story. So in the same way that if we learn a historical event by reading a novel that's set in history and we actually learn it, we are actually learning social skills in the process of embodying these characters and so the outcome of like telling your own well not telling the story of your life but telling a story you control and being immersed in it at the same time and rehearsing all these things then leads very often to a tremendous boost in self-confidence and self-esteem i've watched that happen over and over and over over the arc of playing for a couple of years you see people kind of changed by this gameplay experience. And I, I can't think of any other media that does that and has that kind of power. And I think that's why you see people who play TTRPGs, the amount of time they play a week and the amount of engagement they have when they're playing is like off the chart. It makes video games look like a casual hobby. I mean, one one thing in there too that you alluded to is part of our sort of regression away from pretend and exploration is driven by like a need to fit in societally and be accepted. And the thing that makes TTRPGs different than your standard video game or a book that you might read and enjoy and then be like, I'm not going to talk about this because it feels weird, mm -hmm. is that you are in a room with people who have all sort of made this unsaid social contract of like, hey, we're all here and in the space of this room, this is societally accepted. Mm -hmm. You're exploring that together in an open way where it kind of quiets down a little part of your brain that's sort of chirping in the back of like, this is weird, this is nerdy. Like you might have some of those thoughts afterwards, but in the moment when you're sitting around a table in a room, having snacks, rolling dice, talking to friends, playing at a table, it quiets that bit. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you're not only exploring and feeling comfortable exploring, there is the sort of outside stimulus of this is accepted. We're all doing this together. And in, in this space, this is, this is the cool thing to do. The modern TTRPG community is so good at cultivating intentional, positive social reinforcement at the table with new players here. You're nervous. I don't know if I can do this, whatever. And like you kind of get a standing ovation everything you try, except it's so sincere. It doesn't take very many of those to kind of bring you out of your shell. And that's a great point. I, I, I didn't even think of that. Also, with video games, if you're playing like Skyrim and you fail something spectacularly, you go to a reload screen. There's no camaraderie there. If you're, if you're at a TTRPG and as long as you're like playing respectfully – 
at the table and you fail something spectacularly, there is like the boosting and positive affirmation of like, oh, that was really sick. You tried that. It failed. And now we're all at the bottom of this pit together. But it, it was the roll of the dice and the story continues on. There's not a reset there. And there's affirmation if you fail or you succeed and a lot of like just communal bonding. You can fail, but you can't lose is what I try to tell people about TTRPGs. Also, when you say Skyrim, I had to suppress a Fusrota so hard. <laughs> Victory has no idea what that is. See, I, I have a problem with sometimes pulling out the a new hand touches the beacon at the table. Because Skyrim was my entry into like RPG a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. There were some plot options you could choose to take your character. You could build a character that did different things. It was kind of the pre-Dark Souls, all of that. But beyond choosing to interact with the Dark Brotherhood or things like that, there's not really the level of choice that there is in a TTRPG, which I think is why those stick so much more. And, and I mean, the fact, like we said before, that you're doing it with a group of people. Wow. Skyrim is the Elder Scrolls five, and I had a similar experience with the Elder Scrolls one. <laughs> I mean, Morrowind and all of that, like, it doesn't just stop with Skyrim and all of that. Yeah, yeah. TTRPGs as therapy is what I'm hearing. That is actually something that I've seen people talking about more and more, is actually utilizing that in the context of therapeutic methods, which is really cool i don't really have like the knowledge base to speak on it but i think it's awesome that people are doing that i would say ttrpgs as a self-guided path for mental health growth and support is kind of what i'm talking about and i do think ttrpgs could be used in therapy but like Anne, i don't know anything about it (laughs) although now i want to go learn about it yeah I've even seen, like, people using Stardew Valley in that context, which is wildly fascinating. But, I I mean, from personal experience, over the pandemic, having a social tie-in was huge for, like, mental health and all of that, of feeling grounded in, like, times of uncertainty. And especially when you're facing, in a TTRPG, it's obviously removed from any real-world stakes, but you're dealing with ideas of earth-shattering things, big calamities. And so processing those in a safe, like, fun environment where it is just, like, silly, goofy time a little bit makes it a lot easier to start to, like, train your brain a little bit to deal with actual real-life stresses. Hmm. Yeah, the whole Cozy Games movement with Stardew and Animal Crossing and now Disney Dreamlight Valley. It actually reminds me a bit of something I learned about from... Jacob and Hedge and a couple more people in the Quantum Spin Studios team, there's this notion of soft fascination that's come out of neuroscience research where like a focus, but like not too hard a focus on a piece of media almost takes you to like a semi-meditative state and has like really profound benefits in like rest acceleration and stress reduction. And I do think cozy games kind of sit in that niche I also think like it's why some people prefer TTRPGs that like don't have combat at all and don't really have math. There's like pure narrative TTRPG game systems. 
Victory raises a finger. <clears throat> we should probably take you through a narrative-only game, Victory. you probably really enjoy it. I enjoy those as well, which is part of why the game systems we're, we're nurturing inside a world of Esser are strongly narratively focused, if not exclusively so. On that note, I think we should do a couple listener questions. What do you listener say? Listener questions. Yeah. We have two really great questions from Lyric the Elf. Lyric the Elf. <laughs> what exile game? I mechanic? know Lyric the Elf personally. Didn't know you were friends with an elf. That's true. Well, it's a we've we've played at a table together. What exile game mecha- mechanisms and game design elements are you most excited about, and what have been the most challenging ones to work through? Hmm. Ooh, that's good. I know where I'm sitting, being on the world building team, getting to like trial things out with Mike and Alex. One of the ones that's been the most exciting to watch unfold and some of the testing for has been looking at in-game when you've gone into the wilds and you're actually expeditioning. What happens in those interstitial times? So like, is it a hex crawl? What, what does survival look like? And how do you make that engaging? As someone who hasn't loved that mechanic in a lot of games, it's been really fun to dig into it and and try to create something that's really fun, engaging. And through that, we got to play several different TTRPGs, one of which Victory was at when we played Mothership to look at like survival horror. Like how does going into those situations, how do you like process that mechanically and how does gameplay look and all of that? That's been one of my favorite things that we've gotten to explore because it's it's gone from looking at individual things like how do you narrativize horror, how do you mechanize that, to how, how do you create an experience for expeditioners where there is a map here that is understandable by the GM. There are pieces of like narrative gray box and all of that for them to follow, but the players still feel like they are able to organically choose and have agency over where they're going. And I've loved digging into that. I'll go a little meta architectural here. We're actually building two games right now set in the world of Esser. One is like a full throated TTRPG. It's easier to play than like a fifth edition or a Pathfinder, certainly. But it's still like you sit down, you play for four hours, like, you know, you roll a character, your character advances and you play a campaign, you know, the whole thing. And the other one is like introduction to TTRPG game. And I don't want to say too much because we'll probably be saying a lot about this in the near future. But both of them are meant to embody the dichotomy of Vesser, which is it is a world that is truly wondrous and fantastical and beautiful and ethereal and otherworldly. And we really want the game to allow people to explore the profound beauty of Besser. And it is terrifying. (laughs) I got to, when I'm introducing people, I tell people if, you know, Thor and Superman were out in uh, the wilds of, of Besser, they'd get eaten by lunch. So there's things that are just immensely as powerful as emergent people are and as skilled as scribes and high scripters can be. They they'll get just whipped by some of the 
the, the terrifying things in the world. And so we have three kind of play mechanics that support that dichotomy. We have an exploration mechanic, which like we, we design mechanics that make for GMs a rigorous and supported method for exploring the world. That is a game in and of itself. And that, and that system is, is completely unique and original to us. We have fast-paced action. Notice I didn't say combat. Combat can occur in any of these other pillars. But fast-paced action. Like, we're action heroes to a degree. We want it to feel that. We want to experience that. And then one we lean really hard into, compared to some of the most popular TTRPGs, is social intrigue. It is a world full of factions. There's a lot of tension between those factions. They're all frenemies. And that creates like a really rich soil for social role play. And I feel like the fast-paced action was the easiest mechanically to create. There's so many precedents in the TTRPG world for how to do action well. Exploration was a little more challenging, but like once we cracked the nut, I felt like really satisfied. Social intrigue was the hardest because some players love it and they don't even need mechanics. <laughs> Just let them loose in a world. But other players need, they need mechanics to support that, that gameplay, that, that, that gameplay fantasy. And that, I think for me, that's been the most challenging to work on. Not the least in which, historically, it's been the one I've been least interested in. When I started playing TTRPGs, I was all about combat and tactics. And I have been accused of being a power gamer or a min-maxer. I tend to build like nigh-unkillable death machines characters. But then as I played more, I got more into like this character's relationship with their past. And how they were responding to the past and how that shaped their behaviors now and how that shaped how they interacted with other people. I got really fascinated with the idea of playing like characters that were less like me. So I was like, I'm going to create like neutral alignment or even evil aligned characters that are chaotic. And inevitably, they all migrated into being extremely moral, ethical characters that cared for others. And I just can't help it. So I've stopped trying to not do that in games. But the social thing, I think, was the hardest to build. And therefore, like maybe the piece of the game I'm the proudest of. I think we're making a game where people who just like role play are going to get a lot out of it. And, and then it will deepen their enjoyment of the exploration and action mechanics of the game as well. I know this isn't like a mechanic, but I, I think one of the things I'm most excited for is to see people's like first character that they build. Because, I mean, with... D&D or any like of the other popular TTRPGs, Mike, you alluded to this before, there's something to be said about people's first characters as like a reflection of themselves. And that's kind of a known factor in D&D. Like, you know, sort of what the races are, what the classes, all of that. And we're familiar enough to be like, oh, ha, that's that's what that means about about you as a person. And so I'm I'm excited to see like how that's digested for people building expeditioners like what do people choose like where do they see themselves reflected when they're looking at character creation and i, I think that's going to be something really fun to sort of watch as it unfolds and would you be willing to tell us about your first ttrpg character i 
I would. I don't think this is going to be surprising to you, Mike. <laughs> I played a Lightfoot Halfling. Okay. <laughs> rogue that was multiclassed into Druid. That is not surprising. No, it's not. No, not, none of that is surprising. Her name was Nellie. She was raised by a friendly hag <laughs> who owned like a... Uh, a hag is a specific creature yes, in, the, yes, in the world. Yes, owned like a, a rest stop for adventurers in the swamp. <laughs> Victory's laugh at friendly hag was better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that so much. <laughs> Nellie was unaware of, of the whole hag hagness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As, as happens. Yeah, yeah. It, it does Hags happen. Are tricky. They're a tricky bunch, those hags. We do have one more question from Lyric the Elf, which is a very cool one. How accessible will Exile be for game masters with disabilities that impact their reading and information retention? Will GMs have to hold this whole world in their head while running sessions? As someone who has GM'd other TTRPGs, I struggle with digesting and retaining the details of entire adventures and arcs before running sessions. Like, it consumes a lot of mental spoons for me. I sometimes feel like I have to read and remember a whole book or chapters before having a session, and that can feel overwhelming. Will there be game resources to help GMs like me? Great question. And without spoiling later product announcements. We do focus a lot on making the GM resources as accessible as possible. We have a lot of neurodiverse representation <laughs> in our game design and world building disciplines. And so we're always trying to figure out how, how do we create a game master resource that goes as deep as a GM would want to go and has at a glance resources for GMs who don't want to or are unable to absorb all of the text, which is an ongoing process. So hopefully easier than other systems, but I also don't want to like promise like, no, definitely revolutionary, going to change everything. But our second game <laughs> that we're making absolutely is designed for a GM with zero prep and zero memorization to GM a game immediately. And what I hope is as we continue designing that product, the learnings from it will migrate back over to our full exile game, which is much further along in development. We could we could run a campaign today set in exile. <laughs> you could run the entire campaign, the game mechanics work, everything is everything is there. Whereas that would not be true for this, this other game I'm talking about. But I think it will set a new bar for both player and GM accessibility in the entire TTRPG industry, which is a huge claim. And I also do not think is hyperbolic or hyperbole. Hyperbolic is a different thing. <laughs> hyperbolic. <laughs> <laughs> Our game is, uh, is, can be graphed on a Cartesian coordinate grid. Wait, so if you're speaking in hyperbole, do you need to say I was speaking in hyperbole or can you say I was being hyperbolic? Maybe you can say hyperbolic. I don't know. I mean, I, th I think you can. I think I've been misusing the term. I know I've been saying it. My family makes fun of me because I will say I was being hyperbolic. Oh, yeah, it is. It is related to, uh, related to hyperbole. Okay, I was fine. You were good. I see. Now I mixed up 
hyperbolic and parabolic as mm. in a uh-huh. and hyperbaric hyperbaric is that so yeah we do love a hyperbaric chamber. chamber yeah we don't speak in hyperbaric we do not one of the things that made me nervous about making a podcast again i'm a little self-conscious because i'm on a med that makes my life really really good but it does loosen my vocabulary superpower just a little bit <laughs> <laughs> so i try to get embarrassed when i just like whiff words now I mean, we're all going to do it. I didn't used to. That's the thing. I know. So, so. <laughs> join the mortals. Join join us humans. All right. Well, we would love to answer any questions you have. So if you have one, please follow us on any of our socials and throw your questions in the comments. Or if you've made it to the end of the episode, major announcement. I have a little bit of history of collecting questions for a podcast. I know how the people like to send their questions. So if you don't feel like putting a comment on social media, even though it would really help us out, you can email Mike at Vesser.com and it will go directly to me and then I will share it with the team. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.